Thank you for listening to the Oppenheimer Let's Talk Future podcast series. Today's guest is John Stolfus, Chief Investment Strategist, and our host is Peter Cataray, Managing Director, both of Oppenheimer Asset Management. This episode was recorded on March 5, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous podcasts and to receive notifications when new episodes become available. This series features our thought leaders who bring you timely and relevant insights about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. Hi, I'm Peter Cataray, and welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. Joining me today will be Oppenheimer's Chief Investment Strategist, John Stolfus. John and I will be discussing the current pulse of the U.S. equity market, the realities of inflation and what they mean for investors, and the broad basket of economic data driving the markets. John, thank you very much for joining us. Let's really jump right in and get right to the heart of it. You published your S&P 500 price target in December at 4,300. The first quarter is almost behind us now. Let's take stock of where we stand and how we've progressed toward that target. Great. Uh, well, it's a pleasure uh, being here today with you, Peter, and discussing these things. Uh, first of all, uh, what, where we are today is we are in a period of transition uh, for both the economy as well as the markets, in that we are beginning to really see that we are well on our way to getting out of the woods from the COVID-19 pandemic as a result of uh, vaccines of greater efficacy that appeared to be quite capable of stemming the spread of the virus. And with that, markets and investors are transitioning on expectations of a reopening of significant segments of the economy that will likely enable segments of the market uh, that have been under pressure uh, over the last year to begin to see more than just the light of the day but a brighter future. And so we're seeing transitions within the market related to moving from uh, a market that was very much mainly focused on growth now to a market that is focused both on growth and value as we see it. So in the midst of this part of the transition that is developing from a headline position, it looks like it's all about growth. But uh, we would likely say that, well, the selling in, in growth is not that dramatic to reduce positions that had become somewhat oversized. John, today we also saw some strong reinforcement uh, with economic data, particularly on the jobs front. Talk for just a moment about what we saw today. Uh, Yeah, as you know, uh, Peter, as fundamental investors, uh, we don't just look at corporate revenue and uh, and earnings and projections of future growth, but are very much involved in examining economic data that crosses the uh, transom. Today, we saw the non-farm payroll number uh, was the, the main event. And it indicated that job growth surged uh, past estimates that came from uh, an earlier taken Bloomberg survey of economists. They were looking for around 200,000 jobs to be added in February. uh, But when it came through today, it came in at 379,000, almost double their estimate. And it includes an upwardly revised as well, 166,000 January increase, or you add that on. It really is extraordinarily good numbers, and it it supports our view that the economy has significant resilience in it, that it has shown throughout, and the effects of these rescue uh, programs have been very positive overall. And John, one of the other things that really supports your current market thesis and market 
opinion has been the broadening of the market. When you take a look at 2020, it was very much a year of concentration around a handful of specific growth or stay-at-home type names. 2021 has been a very different story thus far. Share your thoughts on the broadening of the market and how that's reflected in sector performance. Well, it certainly has been reflected in sector performance. If we look at the sectors that are leading this year, the number one sector in performance relative to the other sectors in the S&P 500 is the energy index, which is comprised of traditional energy companies, both the upstream and downstream energy, which would mean essentially uh, exploration as well as processing and then leading to the the marketing of different products. And the energy index is up 37%, a little bit over 37% year-to-date at this time, after having been the worst-performing sector last year, where it was negative in 2020 by about 30-some percent. We also see the second-best-performing sector is financials, which had lagged through most of last year and began to get some life breathed into it as of September last year through the end of the year. Year to date, it's up 12.26% as financial stocks are expected to gain further on back of a steepening of the yield curve and a reemergence of segments of the economy related to services in particular that have been broadly shuttered. And uh, now with that happening, that looks very positive. Communication services, which was among the leadership last year, but not one of the top leaders, uh, up about five and a quarter percent so far this year. And industrials, which was uh, fairly well ignored by many investors last year, up 3.16% right now. Industrials are a sector uh, which is dominated on a broad basis by the, its exposure to the energy sector, as well as to power generation, as well as to commercial aerospace, all areas which are likely to see a pickup as we get economic reopening on the broadest levels. We also expect that will benefit this sector is the potential to see, and of course that's up to the politicians, and when you look at politicians, it doesn't matter where they sit on either side of the aisle, it's like herding cats to try to determine which way they are going to move. So John, as our clients approach the end of the first quarter and they sit down to think about rebalancing and and capital allocation decisions, what do you make of the broadening of the market and how should that factor into those decisions from clients? Is this a sign that we should be looking beyond just the concentrated growth parts of the market? We would certainly think so, Peter. We think you want to avoid over-concentration in growth, yet not eliminate your exposure to growth. We think, in fact, we like very much what institutional investors would call a barbell approach, which in effect would include both growth and value in a portfolio to provide broader diversification and to allow avoiding, eliminating exposure, particularly to technology. You want to avoid that, we feel, uh, based on the fact that technology today is ubiquitous. It is uh, beneficial and utilized, deeply embedded in the lives of of corporations as well as to the individuals, to consumers, and to government. So we would have to say that you still want to own technology. It's good to be diversified into value. Those sectors like energy, financials, industrials, materials, and we would also think to some extent utilities. Once we see uh, some kind of amelioration of the disturbance or volatility that we've seen in the bond market, I think the bond market, as a result of its moving, even though these are fairly dramatic moves on a basis 
point move or the bit of the yield curve, that they are on a real form. Uh, money was cheap before, uh, but money uh, remains remarkably cheap, not just as cheap as it was just a few weeks ago as the 10-year yield has moved higher. I think one of the great pieces of data that you posted in your March chart book was a demonstration of that broadening of the market when you look at the Russell-style performance. In 2020, it was really dominated across market cap and across style by growth. 2021 is just the opposite of that, where value styles are leading across all market capitalization. So very interesting point, John. It started September 23rd is, is the, the line of demarcation in terms of when that trend began. And it ran through the end of the year. Uh, earlier this year, there was a period when it faded and growth started to outperform again. But we're right back right now to value uh, showing outperformance over growth. Uh, but it is not uncommon in a transition to see not only a rotation, but a certain amount of churn within the market as the market determines what levels to be exposed to growth and value. So, John, let's think about another one of the, the common questions that are asked by clients, both institutional and, and individual investors, when we sit and talk to them about markets. Investors are always saying a good market climbs a wall of worries. One of those worries is clearly valuation in this market. Talk for just a minute about your thoughts on the market multiple and where we are and what's sustainable. And Peter, when it comes to uh, valuation, the first thing we have to consider is keeping things in context. And that would be in a period where interest rates on a nominal basis and on a real basis are as low as they are, one naturally would expect that corporate earnings will be valued more or more richly than they normally would be uh, in a period where interest rates were close to uh, a normal during a particular cycle. When we look at the P.E. ratio for the S&P 500, as of the start of this month, it stood at 22.52 times uh, forward earnings or earnings that were expected uh, to flow by consensus analytics. That's down from a recent peak of 27.23 on September 2nd of 2020. And that's what this chart illustrates. Now, that decline in the forward PE multiple from its peak levels in late 2020 stems from a rise in forward earnings estimates by analysts. So as they saw the economic situation improving, as they saw quarter by quarter through last year, and particularly as we got in the second half, that earnings results were getting less bad initially and then became really good in the fourth quarter earnings season, they started raising estimates. And as they got guidance from companies as to what was expected moving forward, a more positive feel came. And that brought down the multiple. So in our view, what we think is that investors and, and analysts are looking uh, beyond last year's earnings results, and they're looking for the potential of what will happen here as vaccines of greater efficacy, and there are two uh, already being widely distributed and the third being added right now uh, in the U.S., uh, what you have to expect, uh, that will help stem the spread of COVID, increase sentiment, uh, confidence among both businesses and consumers to get back to more normal activity. And that should have a good effect on revenues and earnings moving forward. John, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let's move to another topic that seems to be gathering a lot of attention in the markets, and that's just the broad topic of interest rates and inflation. We saw a 10-year treasury touch 55 basis points in August of 2020. We stand some 1% above that or more as, as we have our conversation now. 
What are the implications of that movement to investors, both currently and those that are seeking retirement and thinking about creating income? Ah, uh, those I think they, they are very important uh, implications, and they are ones that investors need to know who they are, what their goals and objectives are. For example, uh, when interest rates move higher on something like the ten-year Treasury, even if they move up just a few bips. To an institutional trader uh, or to uh, an individual trader who's speculative and short-term in nature, especially if they're leveraged, that movement is fairly dramatic. The actual implication for business borrowing and consumer lending and the type of increases that we have seen, even though we've gone from, as you said, just around a half a percent yield on the ten-year Treasury to now. This morning, over 1.6, and as we speak now, around 1.55, so virtually a tripling of that yield. That really is、uh, remarkably has less impact in terms of what that does for borrowing for individuals related to their mortgages or related to corporations. In that, money has essentially gone from next to free to just at a slight increase in cost when it comes to borrowing. Uh, I think the best way to look at it is what does it mean for you if you're buying a 10-year Treasury yield? What are you getting? And I think the reality is not a heck of a lot, and so that should offer some comfort for those who have、uh, exposure to equities, which we believe likely will produce better returns.、Uh, if we look at this chart, and this goes back、uh, 54 years, back to 1965, as I recall. Uh, what you have here is it puts the trend of the yield on the ten-year Treasury in long-term perspective, and we think it's very important for investors to keep things in context. If you take things from every moment that they occur, some things that are really not worrisome may seem of great concern, and vice versa. So what we're experiencing now is a recovery process in yields, but we think it will be if we look at recent history. Consider this: the average yield over the past five years of the ten-year Treasury is two percent. The average yield over the past ten years is two point one four percent. And that ten-year period would be inclusive of both the housing bubble and mortgage and financial crisis, as well as the pandemic crisis. Okay. Then you have the average yield over the past twenty years. You go beyond these crises. The average yield was three point one four percent. And I'm willing to bet you that most people, if you ask them what's the normalized yield on the 10-year Treasury, would probably say, "Oh my gosh! I mean, a few years ago, probably was at five or six percent." No, that wasn't the answer. Wrong answer.、Uh, the average, by the way, over the past 30 years, is 4.22 percent. To get to five percent or better, you have to go out considerably、uh, four and a half, five decades. The 54-year average yield of the 10-year Treasury is 6.14 percent, but it includes averaging in those spikes when it went well into the high double digits, nearly approaching、uh, 19 percent. John, I think there's a camp of market participants that wonder if a 1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief package isn't a spark to create another one of those spikes. I know that's a very specific policy issue when there's a number of things that drive that the ultimate outcome. But is that ultimately inflationary, and can the market digest? We would consider it to be less inflationary than it might have been in a previous cycle, especially、uh, closer to you know that period in the late '70s, early '80s, and even within the 1990s. 
today as a result of the advancements in technology as well as the spread of globalization, we believe that technology and globalization in effect are counterinflationary, not only in, in prior cycles uh, most recently, but in this cycle and likely to going forward. And it, it simply has to do that uh, globalization creates competition worldwide. So today, companies on a regional basis are exposed to competitors from outside of their borders who may have lower labor costs, lower cost of material goods, what have you. In addition to that, uh, you have technology putting pressure on labor, and that is uh, relative to robotics on the factory floor, algorithms in the offices which reduce the number of employees or workers that an employer needs to produce X number of goods or produce X volume of services. And as a result of that, within the labor pool, there is less of a tendency to expect substantial increases in wages on a year-over-year -year basis. In addition to that, technology has, within the commodity complex has made output potential uh, much greater than ever before in most commodities, even in commodities that we've recently seen uh, move higher, particularly energy and in copper. And the reality is both energy and copper are right now are beginning to come off of their peak, although energy today was rising fairly strongly, I recall. But my point is here, the higher the price moves, the more likely the producers of energy will increase production so that they can monetize their investment in all types of infrastructure to find oil, to produce it, process it, and then market it. So we think that current bursts of inflation that we've seen that include those in food, in oil, and in things like copper are likely to be ameliorated as the economy opens, as miners in Peru and Chile are vaccinated and, and copper production ramps higher. I think the number is expected to be a 21% increase in production of Peruvian copper uh, over the course of this year as a result of the reopening of many mines and then the, uh, as well as the uh, in increased output that should result from miners being vaccinated. John, let's focus on two particular areas related to what you just talked about, the dollar and then commodities and what the real world implication are for investors. Since its peak in the beginning of 2020, we've seen a very clear downward trend in the dollar. You mentioned uh, some of the uh, rationale for that, but spend just a moment on that with a specific focus on what you think that means for the international markets and non-dollar denominated investment securities. When you have a global uh, crisis like the, the pandemic or when you have a financial crisis that also went global, investors look for safe havens, whether it's a move towards gold or to defensive stocks or to sovereign debt that is backed by a, an issuer that they trust, what have you. And what that tends to do is uh, strengthen the dollar which has become during crisis a safe haven currency among the many currencies in the world. And the reason why it's considered a safe haven currency uh, is related to our relative capabilities in terms of providing accountability, transparency, and governance. And uh, that is highly supportive of the dollar uh, being a safe haven uh, currency. 
as we move towards an economic reopening as a result of progress made in stemming the pandemic, what happens is we move back to, we actually accentuate the trend that exists, which is the U.S. economy as it improves, sees consumers, both businesses and individual consumers, buy more goods, both of which tend to buy a lot of foreign goods. And when they buy foreign goods, it strengthens the value of those foreign currencies that underpin the markets from which they're buying various materials or various products, okay? And so the decline in the dollar that we're expecting has already begun since last year. It has had periods where when the FX market gets worried about things, the dollar tends to strengthen. And that usually is, again, that safe haven play. But the intermediate trend that we're looking towards, and near term, is overwhelming for the dollar to weaken, not because there's a problem in the U.S., just that there is a less degree of dependency on the dollar as a safe haven asset and a greater desire by investors to be exposed to growth in both the emerging and developed international markets as global economy comes back online, led by the U.S., which is a big importer of foreign goods. So we look for the dollar to continue to weaken. We have seen emerging market currencies strengthen significantly against the dollar over the course of uh, 2020 into this year, and we expect those trends to continue. Uh, We think Europe will likely see strengthening strengthening of the euro versus the dollar. It has seen strengthening earlier this year. We think that'll continue as a result of the fact that we buy a lot of manufactured goods from Europe. That'll help considerably. By the way, the process of a global economic recovery, of course, has to do with demand on a global basis. So that strengthening of those countries that tend to be exporters is very, very common to see in economic recovery. So, John, you mentioned in a few of your points that you view this very much as a demand-driven global recovery as the world reopens and recovers from the pandemic. In previous periods of demand recovery, one could easily lay a demand chart right over a commodity chart and see a clear parallel. As demand has risen, commodity prices have risen. However, there really seems to be a technological advancement, an advancement in the management of the commodities market. How do those two forces reconcile the growing global demand and the relatively muted response from the commodities market? Peter, it really has to do with this effect of of globalization. So there are more producers or more uh, regions that are involved competitively in producing uh, many commodities that are available on a global basis. In addition to that, technology has created an abundance or a potential abundance from periods when you've had contraction in production due to a pandemic, for example, that we're experiencing. And so these organizations are readily capable of increasing output. And and when that occurs, it keeps a lid on prices. So initially you'll get a big jump and then, but you will see that jump be relative to the power of technology and globalization. That capability to generate output of commodities is very broad-based today. And because of technology itself, it's much easier to uh, re-engage and gain traction in output than ever before. It's not as simple as rebooting a computer to reboot a mine, by the way, but there's an awful lot of technology advanced. If anybody has ever uh, walked on the Hutchinson Wampoa piers that have all the container ships in Hong Kong, you'll recognize that there are no stevedores on the pier. It's all robots. And the people who are driving those robots and those cranes that are driven robotically 
are actually in office buildings off-site from the peers. And so it's highly technological, this stuff. Well, John, I want to thank you for your time and, and your conversation today. I appreciate your perspectives on the current state of the market, on the current situation as it relates to inflation and rates, and finally, your perspective on the global economic data. I would just remind our listeners that the charts John referred to are available in the Oppenheimer uh, Asset Management Monthly Chart Book that John publishes, which are available to our clients and available through the Oppenheimer Financial Advisors. So again, John, thank you very much for your time, and we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. Don't miss the next episode where we'll explore a variety of market-moving ideas and perspectives, bringing our firm's financial thought leadership directly to you. Please hit the subscribe button today. Thank you.